This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. You're listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the news you absolutely should be using. You know, one of the big things that was on my radar this week, just following local news and keeping people up to date with what we've been talking about with our maybe future Senator Joe Morrissey. It did come back that they decided, the courts decided to side with the Virginia Bar to say that Joe Morrissey is no longer able to practice law here in the Commonwealth. But will his constituents care? Or rather the people, not his constituents, but his supporters? Right. So most of the feedback I saw on this story was that people were just like, well, it's really interesting that he can't practice law, but he can be a state senator. So that's just and he can also be an active part of the Democratic Party. I saw a lot of Democrats saying, why are we accepting people in that have been disbarred to represent our party? So these are all really interesting questions on the morals and who we're allowing to come on in. So talking about state leadership, we heard that Governor Ralph Northam is planning on doing a work service type of exchange for students to get free tuition at community colleges. Mm -hmm. It's reported that it's going to look kind of like AmeriCorps, which piqued my interest because for those of you who don't know, AmeriCorps doesn't pay squat. Mm -hmm. So like nothing. Yeah. The Daily Press reported vaguely that it would be for a year spent in a, quote, public service job, which, you know, could be a job making, I don't know, you know, probably 20 to 30 thousand dollars a year. Okay, fine. But in AmeriCorps, if it's something more like AmeriCorps, where you're getting paid this super low wage of, you know, twelve thousand dollars a year, Mm -hmm. that's not really livable. And is that really worth the exchange of free community college tuition? Exactly. And a lot of people right now are able to to make more money just doing different things without the college education anyway. But this is a campaign promise that Northam talked a lot about when he was running. So he is following through with these promises and making a way for more affordable education. We're just going to have to really work for it. It's not a given right. You're going to have to put something in as, as, as normal. We can't just have it given to us. So back to Richmond, it was brought to the attention of the school board last week that a number of ESL students had not been counted, and therefore hundreds of thousands of dollars in state funding did not go to supporting these students in our schools. Mm. And as a former English teacher myself, an ESL teacher, who later worked as a university instructor, mm-hmm. I recognize the importance of this language support at an early age. Right. Because it, it really screws over kids later down the line if they don't get it. Right. And for those people who say, oh, well, you know, their parents should be teaching and their parents should be learning. Living abroad as an adult, trying to maintain a full-time <laughs> job while also learning a language and teaching it to your child in a way that your child can use it to navigate the educational and professional spaces in the United States is very, very difficult. I mean, Kat, it really, it breaks my heart because like these 
we have so much outrage about what's happening at the border, but it's still like we're turning a blind eye to many of the non-English speakers here. And what? how are we treating our own right here and, and thinking about that education system? But it breaks my heart. And my mother was an ESL teacher right here in the city of Richmond, too. So it's how do we have these conversations large enough to make sure we're not leaving out anybody? And why isn't that just part of the larger conversation with race as well? But it brings up the conversations that we're having today with our guest about housing and about schools and the pairing system that was proposed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that with our guest. But there's been a lot of information out just why we're doing this. And the purpose of this is truly to bring that diversity and hopes to our Richmond Public Schools. And Chelsea, you know, I was kind of underground out of town last week. Can you give me a really quick recap of what the pairing system is? Sure. So it looks like what they're going to be doing and the actual goal is to improve the district's diversity as part of the rezoning process that was initially proposed by Richmond School Superintendent Jason Cameras and endorsed by the school board. So this pairing option is strictly to impact diversity. We are still learning how to integrate our schools in 2019. And what it will do is that Fox Elementary and Cary Elementary will hold different grades within their buildings and students will actually be bused, I'm using that word very intentionally, to their appropriate grade in school, no matter where they live in those two districts, it will be based on grade. This is getting many, many people up in arms but it's also supposed to address the overcrowding that's happening in a lot of the schools specifically in Southside. Now, Fox North Cary is, is in Southside, so many people are also asking how this is going to help the overcrowding situation. I will say Justin Griffin, who speaks out a lot about city issues, if you find him on social media, he will be posting and has been posting about the different options of the zoning that go outside of Fox and Cary, and many of them do not appear to actually address the overcrowding issues of the schools that have the lowest poverty range in the city. So is this plan actually going to be helpful for those that are getting the worst resources, attention, and have the greatest need? That's the real question. So the pairing system is is new. It's something that we're trying and it's already getting a lot of blowback just in the, the media from parents. But this is just the beginning just the beginning. And so to also kind of catch you up, Kat, too, on the housing lens that we're going to be talking a little bit about today is that RRHA, which is our Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority, which oversees all of our public housing units here in the city of Richmond, is undergoing a new revitalization project, specifically looking at Gilpin, which is the oldest housing unit, public housing unit in Richmond, and has never been given new buildings in a whole overall, but it's been a topic of conversation for years now. And what the RRHA is looking to do is to create a voucher system. This voucher system has already been proven to displace people because many landlords do not have to accept a voucher. Yes, they come money paid in full, like this is guaranteed money for a landlord, but because of what the stereotypical person in public housing or what the voucher brings, many landlords will discriminate against that. And the idea of vouchers also goes on this theory of deconcentration theory that really fuels the public housing 
policy and says, deconcentration emerges out of the idea that poverty is contagious and the conditions associated with poverty, such as crime and violence, are a result of poor people living in close proximity to one another rather than deeply rooted causes such as racism and government disinvestment. So the idea that if we disperse the poverty and the poor people and the crime, it'll be better rather than the idea that they have just these communities have been disinvested from and targeted for pulling resources out of and over-criminalized. That's what's caused poverty in these areas to be so rapid. And so many of the organizers, shout out to LaFonda, shout out to Omari, really pushing the right to the city theory, which is an, an opposite of this deconcentration theory. Right to the city believes that poverty is not contagious or created by poor people. It is caused by systems of oppression. These systems have influenced decades of bad government policy, such as disinvestment in and demolishing of public housing. Ding, ding. Poverty and the problems associated with it will be solved by investing in communities rather than dispersing them. And that's really what last week's housing meeting and demonstration was at the last RRHA board meeting on July 17th was people showing up and saying, if you're going to demolish or quote unquote revitalize, you need to build every unit up that you tear down rather than giving them a piece of paper and saying, hey, go find your own housing. This is a public matter. This is our right. And if you can't conceptualize how important these vouchers are to our students' education as well, because a voucher would probably mean that they are moving to another district. And that's just the conversation, this intersecting conversation, bringing these narratives to the forefront that we want to have today with our guests. So we're really excited today for our panel to continue to talk more about these racial narratives that have rooted right here in Richmond, Virginia, the formal capital of the Confederacy. On the show today, I'm really excited to have an intersecting conversation that we just do not amplify enough here in the former capital of the Confederacy, and we are talking about housing and schools. With me today, we have, oh man, a full panel of gentlemen. Okay, but don't worry, me and Kat are still holding it down as the femme voices. But why don't we go around and introduce ourselves. Let's start right here. All right, my name is Daryl Hayat. I am a lawyer for the Virginia Poverty Law Center, and we'll be working for the next two years for a, a movement called Equal Justice Works. And so uh, it's the Virginia Poverty Law Center in conjunction with the rest of the legal aid community. Very cool. Black lawyers. I'm Tykeen. We know you. I've been experiencing some knee pains. (laughs) And I thought that they were growing pains, but I'm still 6'1". For those of you all who don't know me, I grew one whole inch in my 30th year. So he likes to call himself Mr. 6'1". I guess we're all calling him that. Where I'm from, you don't give yourself a nickname. You earn it. And so the street committee started calling me Mr. 6'1". He started the street committee. Anyway. And finally, and uh, I'm Bill Rice. I'm only five foot five, though, <laughs> and uh, I'm a law student, and I'm interning at VPLC with uh, Daryl. Very cool, very cool. And don't worry, we I do not discriminate on verticalness or height or anything. But Ty King likes to keep us updated with what's happening at his uh, PCP visits. Anyway, I wanted to invite you all in because there has just been a lot of conversation 
all over my my newsfeed, to be real honest, about racist narratives and housing and schools. And I was talking with my radio folks like, what do we what do we talk about this week? And I was like, why don't we just talk about both? I also realized that I was doing a lot of work emotionally with white people, explaining things, explaining these narratives, all of my social media. And if you kind of follow me, that's a little bit of what I do, even though it's exhausting, I don't get paid for it. And that's not equity. But I just realized how difficult this conversation really is for our community. So I thank you all for being here with me and being very open and honest and ready to have this conversation from your professional lens, as well as just your personal one being here in Richmond. So welcome. So Tykeen, remind everybody what you do besides grow randomly in your 30th year. So I'm the executive director of Virginia Excels, which is an education advocacy organization, statewide org, but we're based here in Richmond. Okay, great. So Daryl, why don't we go first with the housing conversation and you and Bill kind of give us a little bit of the landscape of if somebody were to come up and say, hey, give me a brief rundown of the housing crisis that's in Richmond. And if you don't mind, since we're on race capital with a little bit of a racial lens context as well, what would you, how would you answer that question? Well, uh, I, I guess there's no way to really talk about the housing without talking about race, right? So but the overview is that Richmond, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of facts that I could spout out, but I won't. So okay. the the nuts and bolts of it is that Richmond has the second highest eviction rate in the country. Mm. And in that's the whole country, like the, the city country, of Richmond, the whole country. Yep. Yep. The whole country. And the rental housing authority of Richmond is the largest landlord in the city. Right. So one plus one is two. You mm-hmm. add in that. The so go back. You said the Richmond Rental Housing Authority. Okay. Uh, the RRHA, mm-hmm. which uh, has a new CEO, Damon Duncan, and so they're the largest landlord in the right. city. Right. So Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority, RRHA, Public Housing. Is this HUD? Is this just for people yeah, that don't? HUD. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna break it down. This. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, so like I got it. Okay. I'm gonna let you go. <laughs> all right. So because it'll it'll all you know interchange into something simple. So you have the fact that you have the second highest eviction rate in the country. Richmond is the capital of the uh, state of the Commonwealth, one of the first 13 stars, right? Uh, They are putting people into these housing conditions that are a little bit Sad to say the least. I mean, it's tragic, but it's sad because, you know, we, you know, I get pictures of these, what did that lady say? Her house was leaking for like six years. Yeah, yeah. six years. Something crazy, right? So these unhabitable kind of living conditions. So you add in living conditions with largest eviction rate with RHA and what you have, unless I'm wrong. And now I want to preface this by saying I didn't make this up because I just got here. I, I'm 36 <laughs> and I got here in 83, so I didn't make this word up. But what you have is it, a slumlord, mm. right? Unless I'm, I mean, if your housing conditions are trash mm. and you're kicking people out and you're mm. being so impolite, then people may call you a slumlord. So what you may have is second largest slumlord in the country, Woo! which is a little embarrassing if you're one of the 13 stars, right? Because there was something out where they were campaigning because they wanted to put the 13 star flag on some shoes. Yep. Right? Yep. They were so proud. <laughs> right? They and were. people were like, no, don't do that. It's racist. They said, no, it's not. Ra- no, we're so proud of these 13 stars. Well, one of your stars is like horribly treating their people. Like That would be so embarrassing. Hey. So I think that there was a report that came out a couple of years ago about Richmond's in th- th- 
not only that, but I believe five of the top 10 cities were in Virginia. So it was okay. just an issue. And they were, I guess that they were embarrassed and they're trying to, they're trying to deal with that from a PR standpoint, but at the same time, they're trying to take down the public housing structures and rebuild and revitalize and do all that stuff, which is okay, right? But the people have a voice. It's their place. So they have concerns and they have voices, but right. they didn't really have the, the knowledge of rights, constitutional rights, mm -hmm what they can say, they, things, process to get it done. Mm -hmm. So that's why we came aboard, is to give them the voice to transcribe their voices mm. into language that everyone can hear, even the General Assembly, even the mayor, governor, because I could speak to them all, I could speak to the hood, and I could speak to Congress, it doesn't make a difference. Right. So now they have a voice. So, so now it's a little equal playing field. I think that, that, that Omari, who is a community organizer. Shout out to Omari. Shout out to Omari, did a fantastic job at the, uh, the event. He said that, that, that people were calling us the equalizers. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> Right. I thought that, that was so cool because it's like, yeah, we're here. It's a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of community organizers that are here just to level the plane, not taking advantage. Right. They don't want advantage, but they want to level playing field. Yeah. So. And what event was that? And this was the the RHA public meeting that they had two nights ago, wherein the the people of Richmond told the RHA what they wanted in this new rehabilitation and revitalization, public housing vouchers being at the forefront because the people want one for one unit replacement for everything you smash down, you build one up. And of course, the RHA wants to do housing vouchers, which they tried about 15 years ago with Blackwell. Yep. Ugh, right? Turned out to be a horrible idea. And a lot of people still don't know that story. Okay, so I'll give you the nuts and bolts of that. Love it. Blackwell got revitalized under this Hope 6 grant, and they said, okay, we're gonna smash this down, and we're gonna build up some new places, we're gonna use housing vouchers to move people to, to new places. You could go anywhere, and they kind of sold it like a vacation, right? <laughs> like a timeshare, right? So people say, okay, so they moved, and, what, and then what they found, this, this, this great gentleman, his name escapes me right now, that wrote the thesis. This, this guy from VCU wrote a thesis, looking at what happened from Blackwell. Mm -hmm. What happened with these mm -hmm. people that got displaced? Mm -hmm. He found that all the people that were getting displaced moved away from the places where banks were, yep. where school, where good school systems were. Born that type stuff. Yeah, because it, 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 all, it, it all interlocks, yep. right? Yep. And they got moved away from resources, yep. got put in high concentrated areas of crime, prostitution. So you actually, so what are you doing for poverty then? You're right. just moving them into another poverty stricken place. Yeah. Right. So you're not doing anything. Right. And and the big I remember just from being here for so long, the media talked about this Blackwell atrocity as because they literally lost residents. Like they were supposed to be contacting people, inviting them back in to move back in when they revitalized the area and literally could not find people. And it's because they did not do this like the one on one thing that they're asking for now. And just being a social worker in the area, I remember many of those folks what ended up happening is generations they were just all living together in the more in the public housing units and like illegally, right? So that just caused them to be at higher risk for being criminalized, watched over and evicted because they're having to have their entire family like three generations in one housing unit in one of the courts because they were displaced from Southside years ago yeah I mean at the end of the day Richmond's gonna have to decide 
how what their legacy, what their reputation is truly going to be mm. as one of the as the first colony, Jamestown, Pocahontas, and all that other stuff. I just got here. They sold me. <laughs> in, in, they sold me on it. So I don't want people to think I have some kind of agenda. No, I come from Queens and New York City. I just happen to come from the impoverished community. So I know, you know, I was pre-sectionating everything. I know what they're dealing with. So I'm being able to talk to them. But but I just got. I love Virginia. I think it's beautiful with mm -hmm. beautiful people. The art culture is thriving. It's beautiful, mm -hmm. right? And you're you're the first colony now. So now you're the first colony. So now you're a beacon. Mm. You're a beacon for the rest of the third. If anybody gets it right, the 13 colonies are supposed to get it right. Mm. If anybody gets it right, it's supposed oh. to be the first. They wanted the flag back on shoes. <laughs> right? I want to go back to the RIJ meeting that was mm -hmm. a couple of nights ago that on, you mentioned. It was July 17th, last Wednesday. Yeah, yep. and there were several complaints voiced there. Can you yeah. tell us about some of those? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I saw the pictures. It was like the biggest crowd I'd ever seen. And it, it was amazing. Meetings. Omari and whomever else built that together did a fantastic job. All right, so the meeting, the speaker. So the first speaker said that they wanted a new plan because... The first plan was disadvantageous for the elderly and the disabled. The second speaker talked about, you know, receiving backlash for trying to help the community. He, he wanted to do something for the community and he received backlash from the community about it. The third speaker said that the CEO plans on mass destruction and he stated that the property company are not a people company and that they told him that they were a property company, not a people company. He was very passionate for speaker. For All of them were articulate, substantial. Mm -hmm. They had great and great passion, but they also had great points. And the people spoke. Now, they may not know the nuts and bolts of the infrastructure of law legislation, which is why we're there. Right. Right. But they know what they want. And, I, I and that's think, a huge uh, step. And what they need, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, and, and and only they know what they want and need. Right. That's why their voices are so important. So I'm so glad that, that they are. And I think a major point that was brought up by a lot of people who spoke out, and this ties back to Blackwell too, is that currently in Virginia, it's legal to discriminate based upon a source of income. So yep. getting people on vouchers isn't as easy as it seems to be because landlords can legally discriminate against people based upon them having housing vouchers. Absolutely. And that's tied directly into raise because that's just kind of like a pretextual reason for people yeah. some to deny black people housing. Some landlords literally like advertise no Section 8 vouchers allowed. Like don't even try to apply yeah. here, right? So a couple things. But first, uh, my question is, in the city, as we continue to talk about equity, why don't we have a program where we have like an incentive, like maybe a tax incentive for landlords who will accept vouchers, right? But what you're talking about, rehabilitation of low-income housing, it's possible. So my mother runs a low-income housing community in Farmville. I'll preface this by saying that it's much smaller than the housing communities here in Richmond. It's only 80 units, but they rehabilitated about eight years ago. And no one was displaced at all. And so the rehabilitation was in phases. So they didn't knock down the exterior of the of the housing community at all. But what they tried to do, they hired moving companies. Well, this is what they did do. They hired moving companies to move people from one apartment to another until their building was finished. Oh, wow. And there were a few certain few times where they didn't have like in, the, in another apartment with an appropriate size that that could accommodate the family mm -hmm. and they placed them in a hotel they had a per diem for food mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's definitely possible 
And so, I mean, I, I applaud the folks for using their voice and thank you all for being there and being the I mean, it's possible. And thank you for mentioning that because that's because that's important that it is possible. Right. Because right that now, maybe it's not 80, but, it, you know, it's 4,000. So, OK, so you're you're talking about displacing 4,000 people, mm. which is Families. expensive, but it's still you, you, you use the term possible. Right. Right. Not he didn't use expensive. Because we know it's going to be expensive. Right. Everything is right? expensive. He didn't say it's going to be easy. Because right. we know it's going to be difficult. But it's possible. Right. But, so but one are, for but one. I mean, I mean, even about the expensive piece, right? Like, we know that these communities generate a great deal of revenue. So even if it is expensive. Well, well say they don't. Who cares? This is your people. I don't, you know, the whole thing about the productivity of the people. Because, because I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Right. The government said CFR, I think it's 24 CFR 955, they want every American citizen to have affordable housing and a quality, comfortable environment. I didn't make it up. I just got here. They said that. Now, I know that it was post-war and they're trying to get people back in, you know, after the war, trying to get people in. But that's what you said. You said it. You said it. All right. So stand on that and get people. I don't care how much it costs. Right. Now, I know it's going to be expensive, but I know that y'all know how to get people. I was an adult in 2007. Mm -hmm. I saw what happened. I saw how y'all got out that economic crisis. I, I saw Paulson go up to the go up to Congress three times. And that's for trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars twice. And once he asked for a blank check and he got it, which is fine. I'm not saying good. I'm, I'm glad he did. Thank you for saving us from the Great Depression. Good. But we're not asking for trillions of dollars. Even if you give ten thousand dollars to each displaced resident, four thousand a clip. That's four hundred million dollars. All right. So. Cut the check. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that's not our mission, but that's just, I'm, I'm giving you an example yeah, just to show that of the you could put there. a Band-Aid on something. But then if you give $10,000 to each person, you got to trust that they're going to do the right thing. And that becomes a problem because now we tie back into the race thing is that they don't trust black people or Latino people or anybody with anything because they think that you may cause crime and corruption or you just may be bad for the community, raising property. And that's, that's, then that becomes the race and the issue is what? Because you can bail people out. You've bailed out the entire country. So right. you could bail out right. your first colony, Jamestown, Pocahontas, right. Disney, and all that. Bail them. Right. They need a couple. So, oh, but but then if, if if you allow them to have some resources and allow themselves to build, then they might actually even move into your neighborhood and into your schools, right? I want to tap into the conversation that's now happening in Richmond because around the schools issue. And to before we leave the housing, let's just remind everyone that when this research came out a couple years ago to name that. Richmond was the number two highest eviction in the country. That wasn't new to the people here in Richmond because they had been complaining and organizing for a very long time. And Omari has been on the front lines with Lilia Estes, RIP, and Art Burton and folks that have been standing there outside of RRHA for years demanding justice and pushed out former CEOs. And now we have another CEO that seems to be tone deaf, even if his melanin looks like ours. So I... <laughs> I, it, it is so real in here and that we've got to understand that this is a systemic issue. So it absolutely leaks into our neighborhood schools as well. And there was an article that came out this uh, last week 
about the pairing process that's coming with Fox Elementary and John B. Carey Elementary. And there were some quotes in there about parents' comments that they didn't want their kids to be going to these schools and that they would move their children to private schools. And that's not why they moved into this area to go to this school. Tykeen, help me understand the outrage of white people upset about busing here in Richmond 2019. So where do we start? (laughs) So, in short, to kind of preface this conversation, I think we should probably talk about the pairing a little bit, about Mm -hmm. this being an option. So, the RPS has hired a consultant, what is it, Cropper Solutions, I believe, and they have come up with a few options, two options, to kind of try to diversify the schools. And the option has really kind of coming under fire. There's a pairing between Cary and Fox. And basically what will happen is one of the schools, I'm drawing a blank here, but I think Fox will serve K through three and a K through two. And then Carrie will serve three through five, grades three through five. Okay. And so instead of having two separate schools, right? these two schools will merge and the two schools will serve different purposes. Right. And like, what is the purpose of this pairing? To try to create more equitable schools in Richmond and to diversify them. Because as you talked about, as you alluded to earlier, we really can't talk about education mm-hmm. without talking about housing and redlining in America right. and how schools are more segregated today than they have been historically. Right. Even when we had segregated schools in some places or right after segregated schools. And so this was this is an effort to try to desegregate some of these schools. Okay. And in 2019, that is our goal. 2019. And so <laughs> I think that like the interesting that. thing about it, well, so one of the quagmires is this is one of the only places in the city where they really can do this right now because there are a lot of other barriers and logistics that, that make it more difficult to pair or merge other schools together. So... This idea comes about, and now all over the news feed for me on the social of medias are either, are people complaining about this process and or complaining even about the the media article that came out because there was some alluding that the, it made it seem like the majority of the parents at Fox didn't want their kids. But there are a lot of Fox parents that are coming out and saying, that's not how I feel. Don't paint me as racist, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So the article was written um, Justin Mattingly, who's the air reporter for RTD. He wrote this article. There was a survey And 39 people responded to the survey. He didn't quantify how many, but he said just over half of the respondents complained about this pairing. And so he used a quote in there from a parent of a preschool student who said that they will probably move or potentially remove their student, like won't allow their child to go to Richmond Public Schools if this option happens. Right. And I I bring this up because this was part of my exhausting work last week on Twitter was reminding white people that 
you may not feel like you have a problem with this, but like the fact that you are living in a very certain place in Richmond means that you chose to live there separated from other places as well. So this is part of your choice, number one. Number two, we are clogging up the airwaves, the, the media space, the narrative space with white people just trying to defend themselves to not being racist versus just talking about the real inherent racism that we have going on in Richmond. And that was part of my problem with the white liberal progressive Richmonder and I was just like, yo, I get you're not racist. You want to defend yourself about this. But like, why are we talking about this? Why aren't we just talking about the fact that we have this major problem? We have to do this in 2019. Sure. So I think that we should talk about both. And so but I don't want to minimize, like you said, I don't want to minimize the real issue here. Right. Is that these two schools, which are very close to each other, Mm -hmm. look completely different and the results are completely different. The resources are completely different. Right. And so I'm I'm saying a couple different things happen here. Number one, I wasn't the biggest fan of the timing of the article. And Chelsea and I had a discussion about this yesterday. So the timing of the article, I think there were opportunities. So I saw more than what was included in the article. And I don't know if Justin didn't have the time or he didn't have the will, but I thought that he could have built out the article more. For example, there were more than I will just use 25 as an arbitrary number. Mm -hmm. There were more than 25 inflammatory remarks on social media that I saw personally between some Facebook groups I'm in, some Facebook groups that I'm not in, Mm -hmm. that I've been privy to some uh, screenshots. And so... I think you have that dynamic and like, why did he choose to write this article about someone who has a preschool student? Like, why did he include this? Why didn't he actually talk to parents? Because even though they thought they were in safe spaces, they have been really expressing themselves. So I think that's one part of it. That's how I feel about that. But I think that's a like a minor issue. The real issue is I encourage you to go look at the RTD's comment section. I encourage you to look at support our schools i encourage you if you are in the fox pta page to read those comments like these aren't dog whistles like this is i I tweeted this this is like bull connor's bullhorn you know these folks aren't this isn't like oh man like i don't want my kids to go to that school no these people are saying like black kids can't learn unless white kids are around so Basically, they're instilling this white savior complex right. in these ki- in these elementary kids, and that is the problem. And that and I bring up white liberals and using their voice to just defend themselves versus talking about the real problem because I just want to remind white liberals here in Richmond the power of your voice, like the privilege that you have and the medians that you have, so that use your your power and your effort to point out these things literally like the screen i would rather see screenshots of that on my twitter than white people telling me about how not racist they are and the the good comments there are good people out there yes 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 but we would not be here we don't need any more highlighting of the the great people here in richmond i need highlighting of the real truths of what's actually happening so that because it's not until we have these tragedies where people are harmed and traumatized that people get how inherent and violent the racism is still is here yeah so i think my question and internally the discussion i've been having is how effective is it to present it in this manner like to shame folks from your um bully pulpit if you will Mm -hmm. and 
And so I think that we definitely need folks that are shaming people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, I tell people, you know, you have you need to have those proverbial people who are out there throwing rocks at the window. But you also need people who can, like, get inside the room. So sure. I think you need both. And so what's missing, I think, is that balance. And so some of those parents, like, I know a number of folks who said, oh, I think this is a great thing. And Superintendent Cameron's actually tweeted this, I think it was yesterday, like, I think these people are the majority, but they're the silent majority. Like, they aren't saying this. Silence is violence. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, li- li- literally, though, because we didn't had the the inside man for generations and look where we are actually actually we're actually worse. So I'm just to the point where I don't think that we as a community understand the crisis that we're in. Like, right. It, it, and it's and we're still having these silo conversations and not talking about the how the eviction rate really impacts our schools and how a poor education system maybe doesn't even get talked about in a house where they're just worried about keeping the lights on. We, we don't even have time for these other conversations. So I do, I wanna talk a little bit about too, what are some solutions and some challenges that we can put out to people to help with this crisis that we have in Richmond and whether it's housing or schools. That's why I just talk about race in our lens period. I think it's, it's a reality lens that we need shaken up. Well, first I wanna to say to the preschool lady mm-hmm. or gentlemen that said that they'll take their kids Mm -hmm. out of Richmond schools that let us know when you move because we need the space uh, because (laughs) people are being evicted. Thank you for that. Uh, It's Daryl at DPLC.org and just give me a shout out. Let me know you moved. I mean, I'm dead serious. Like, I'm not even, we could use the space. So thank you so much. I mean, because that's the kind of choice that that matters, right? As adults, you do have a choice mm. to either grow up and be an adult or you could move if you like. And then we could just reacclimate you. Because one of the things that I want to say, you talk about this race issue. You mentioned the integration of schools. And when uh, I moved from Queens, New York, I moved to Alexandria, Virginia to finish school at uh, T.C. Williams High School. And Remember the Titans? Yeah, remember the Titans. And then my senior year is when I learned about that, how they brought Hammond and GW, they brought these schools together, and they didn't like each other, it was racially driven, and at the end they got along. So I thought that Virginia had figured this out in the 70s. No, you're still doing the same thing with race? It's boring. You're supposed to be the beacon, meaning you came in here giving us all this crap, James Madison, everything you have is named after somebody with their uh, signature on a constitution saying how great you think that people are and how everybody wants to be cool and great and progressive and American and patriotic and citizen and all that, right? Got the lady with the torch in New York, got the flag, and and you're still dealing with the same issues. So it's, it's, it's really archaic. But one thing that I want to say is that i mean poverty since there's been currency there's been poverty right right? right. so let's not lose the force for the trees and say we're going to have a solvent for something that is by design supposed to happen in any kind of a capitalistic place if if the first dollar ever came out of the thing and i have it and you don't i'm rich and you're poor right and then if everybody has 400 million dollars and i have one million dollars i'm poor Right. And my $1 million is now also worthless right. because you can set prices and charge me a million dollars for a bag of rice and I'm poor again. Right. So this has been going on since the Romans. There's been feudal, all this stuff. So we're not going to, let's not lose the forest for the trees. The keys issue, key issue is the key in, and you said what to do is to contact, starts with people like us. Contact us, let us know what's going on. 
what, what your concerns are, how your house looks, send it to us. One thing also that, that I want to mention, people talk about race all the time and they forget that it's not just a black and white issue. There's a Latin population that is uh, hurting right now in the mobile home uh, parks. And really briefly, there is a community lawyer named Joe. I'm not going to ruin his last name. So I'm just going to call him Joe and his email. Oh, but is Joe it's, not, it's not Joe Morrissey, though, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, I just want to make sure we clarify that. Nah. It's, <laughs> I don't think that he'll be working with us. But uh, it's, it, it's Joe at VPLC.org. And he emailed me something that I just want to read. It's really, really quick. Please. Okay. This is from Joe, and he's a, the community lawyer for the mobile homes. He said, manufactured home communities, also called mobile home or trailer parks are the largest source of affordable, non-subsidized housing in Virginia. Affordability comes from people owning their homes, but renting the land beneath them. This also creates a low barrier to entry, especially for those with bad or no credit or rental history. These are the homes of marginalized and working class folks. Compared to other forms of housing, they are home to a disproportionate number of families with children or the elderly, Latin, and white families, first-generation immigrants, and those with disabilities. A survey of the Central Virginia region found that the income level of residents of manufactured housing in the region are just one half of that of all households. Manufactured housing dwellers are significantly more likely to be living on a fixed income than their counterparts in site-built homes. The housing is failing and parks need stabilization. The same study found that in many of the parks, the homes and communities are in such disrepair as to be functionally obsolete. This threatens displacement through either condemnation or community or selling to vulture capitalist investors who will potentially either raise rents or replace the park with new development. Okay, there is a solution. Uh, Resident-owned communities have stabilized parks in other parts of the country. When residents purchased their park as a cooperative, rents stabilized while conditions improved. This makes sense as a, all lot rents go back into the community servicing the park mortgage, not enriching a third party who has no real accountability. I can get you more specific info on just how Hispanic Richmond parks are if you are interested. Sorry, this is a little rushed. Best, Joe. So that was the email that he gave for me. So that's just to just show you that is a very broad, very uh, cumbersome problem. There's a lot of layers to it. And we got to lose the big old brushstrokes, the big, broad brushstrokes of, sure. of, oh, let's do this and this. And that's not how this thing works. Right. You have to work it from the inside and out. I know you mentioned Damon Duncan and maybe he's this and that and the other, but I'll tell you what, in his position, and I've spoken to him both in front of people and personally, and in his position, he can, if he so chooses, make a difference. A, a unique difference because he's in the inside. Yeah. Which is which which is what has to happen. You got to go from the inside yeah. out in the outside, and you have to interweave the two. Yep. Maybe he has good intentions. Maybe he doesn't have bad intentions. Maybe the jury's out. Maybe the public already has certain you know things about him. Maybe he's a fall guy. Maybe he's a big bad guy. The jury's out. But I will say this to him: is that this is your show. You yeah. can make it. You, you you could you know so you could help. But you need everyone. You need the lawyers. You, you, you need the education people. You need to make it work because you're talking about vouchers. People that are in education are the first people. You need. Where's, where are they going to? Where's the, the schools? School? Right. Where's the exactly. schools? Exactly. What are you doing? Exactly. How are you going to be doing? Where's the banks? Where's the supermarkets? I, you know, in uh, Blackwell's a rehabilitation, they moved them away from all the supermarkets. Right. We still ain't got no supermarket. Come on, yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah, so I think the solution with the education piece, okay. I think that we just really have to harp on the thing that I've been trying to harp on 
in all of my conversation. The difference in Armstrong and Open, it isn't about academic acumen, right? It's about the resources and the people there feeling empowered and using their social capital. And I think it's the same thing with housing, like in the city. So you wouldn't be talking about redeveloping Monument Avenue <laughs> just because of the people there, because right. of the, you can call it political clout, the influence, the power that they have. And so marginalized and disenfranchised folks, like we have to find ways to amplify their voices because the some of these stakeholders, if we want to believe it or not, like, well, those people aren't contributing to my campaign. These people aren't coming out voting in some of these off year elections. So I don't really owe them anything like the people that I'm I'm working for are the people that are showing up. And so I think that we have to, like, redefine our community engagement and really empower people to use their voices, because if they start showing up consistently, that's the thing. We can't just show up at one meeting. Right. Right. Because they'll just delay a vote. And then they'll have a meeting at 11 a.m. when everyone's at work. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we just have to continue to to show up and to speak truth to power and to, you know, their strength in numbers. And And so and so I can't say some of the people that we are working with in the community might not be able to give five thousand dollars to a to a campaign or to a candidate. But if we can get 100 people to show up in a room like. Who cares if they pay five thousand dollars? And 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 just to add on to what you're saying, the people don't know their power, just that they have just ingrained by their constitutional rights right. to be. I mean, this is for you. They said we the people. Now it it now includes you. Right. They may not people may not like it, but you're a citizen with all the constitutional rights afforded to you. That's why I'm here to make sure that you get it all. You get all the cool stuff. You get to vote. You get to have your voices heard. Everything, every affordable amenity that was that is inscribed in black and white language. And this is what I'm trying to say. Let's not lose the force. This is in black and white language. You, your power is inscribed. So use it and utilize it. The education of and and also another thing, just speaking to black people, is you got to get somehow try to get over the fact that when you see an acronym, that those people don't care about you. And say, oh, you don't care about me. VPLC. I, I had people at that meeting say, oh, you guys don't care about me. We just got here. We definitely care. All we do is care about you. That's the whole job mm-hmm. is to care about you 24 7. It's hard. I mean, honestly, it's hard to build up trust with a community. But that, and, with infrastructure. But, and, that's and, and that's, that's but, but yeah. see, that then becomes that then becomes on the That's the burden of the community. I it get is. it. I get where you come from. I saw them. I, I was there. Me and my sister and my mom, we were there. All right. We were we were in Queens, New York in the middle of the winter, homeless. My mother had to go with kid in each hand to social services, fill out forms. This is back in the 90s. There was no Internet. My mother with her feet had to do it. We had to wait for housing for two years and we're in basements. We see mice and this and that. And then somebody's trying to snatch my sister up and all this crazy stuff. Gangs, murder, every form of abuse known to man. I get it. I was in the maze. I got born from the maze Mm. and I, I had lions and tigers and bears and everything as you try to get your way out of there. Mm. And by blessings and everything, and by my great-grandfather, rest in peace, Martin Anthony, by, by my grandfather and all these blessings that I got, I'm able to circumnavigate and get, get out of there. Right. Now, and now that I'm out of there, I'm here to tell you that, uh, that you can 
do it, mm -hmm. that you have rights as citizens, that what you're going through makes you no less of a person and even makes you a better person. But yeah, so anyway, that, you know, I, what you're going through just does nothing but make you stronger. Because with that, with everything that I've been through has given me a, this, this cloak of strength because I've been down in hell and I made it. So now I can do what you do, but, I'm, but I know that you can't do what I do, which is, you know, survive in any kind of situation. So take pride in that strength mm -hmm. that you have to be survivors, but also don't lose the fact that you are an American and, and you have rights and exercise all of them. And if you feel that any of the one of the rights is affordable housing, quality housing is a right inscribed in black and white. So if, you, if, if that's not happening, if you had rats in there and all this crazy stuff that's going on in these in these in these places yeah then let us know and, and thank you so much for being here so before you all leave i'm gonna invite you guys to take part of what's your privilege what's your privilege is a segment where we invite our guests to identify their privilege they carry out in the world to dismantle and disrupt the myth of white supremacy Takeem, mr cooper mr six one go first so cisgendered male, my education is a privilege, economy, my economics, I have financial privilege. How, are you, how do you use I, that? I have height privilege. Oh, wow. <laughs> Get out of Just leave. No, <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, but yeah, how, how, how are you using that right now? Talk a little bit about what you're doing. Which part? Anything. The height um, privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I was being facetious there, Kat. No, we're keeping it out of here. So I think that I've tried to use my privilege to show people a different perspective, right? So growing up in a community that still has this ugly scar from massive resistance and segregated public schools. So for those of you all don't know, I'm from Prince Edward County, where public schools were closed for five years after Brown v. Board to prevent desegregation. I think I can just give that perspective of like, this is what happens if we don't do the right thing. And then look at the impact that it has on my community and the state economically, physically, mentally, emotionally, like we're still the ramifications of that decision in 1959 still has a drastic impact on Prince Edward County in 2019. So here we are in 2019. You know, in the words of Allen Iverson, you know, we talk about practice, <laughs> practice. And so here we are in 2019 in this quote unquote post-racial society, 400 years after the first enslaved Americans came to Virginia, Not indentured where service. we have an executive branch of the Commonwealth of Virginia still in shambles for one reason or another. <laughs> and we're still up here talking about and we but we continue to use this word equity until like it looks us in the face and say this is what equity looks like. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, I think what equity really looks like, we all going to have to sacrifice something. Right. It may be convenient. It may be time. It may be money. But like we all have to sacrifice something. But we won't ever have equity of like only half of us because a large number of us have already like we've been putting skin in the game the entire time. Right. Hello. So, like, we've been trying to practice equity, but it hasn't been reciprocated. Exactly. So, well, thank you for your work, sir. Uh, thank you, thank for you all here. for having me. Yep. All right. Who wants to go next, Bill or Daryl? I can go. So we can leave Daryl the best for last. Oh, wow. 
Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so a whole bunch of obvious ones. I'm white, male, straight, cisgender, come from a Christian family background. But tied into that, I would point out that I grew up in a house that was owned by my parents. And part of that is because of the governmental policies that allowed for white families like my family to purchase a house and generate that generational wealth. Mm. Um, that would set my family and the community I lived in in Philly ahead of black families that were pushed out of accumulating that type of wealth that was government sponsored. Mm. Mm. Wow. I'm, Way I, to own that right, white I, historical privilege. I definitely uh, won't be the best, but I will <laughs> that be last. Was good. <laughs> my privilege, I think that my privilege is that cloak that I was talking about, the ability to know, the confidence to know that there was strength in that pain from coming up and that that type of pain and those experiences really do put things into perspective. So you're able to compartmentalize a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff doesn't mean anything to me. A lot of things, social media things, things that people are on soapboxes about doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything to me because I know what's important. I know what's going on. So that gives me a lot of free time to not be focused on the wrong things or be persuaded to do anything that I don't want to do because I gain that strength. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And my culture is also a privilege. You know, the hip hop culture is, is, is what everybody wants to be. And I was, mm -hmm. you know, I was in the hotbed of it. You know, I grew up in Queens in the 90s, you know, and it was just like, you know, my mother had to, gold earrings and the name belts and it just became the culture and you know the guy who just left he mentioned Allen Iverson and I was like our role model you know we all got whole, all these tattoos I got are based you know are because I saw him do it wearing our cornrows loving our music project Patton all my and you know all my homeboys that you know my father was gone and all my homeboys and all our great experiences just taking care of each other mm -hmm. and being just part of the culture and that hip-hop culture is just so important because what it really is is just a bunch of us getting together saying, hey, I care about you. If Nobody else cares about you. Mm -hmm. So we're going to just do our own thing, you know? Mm -hmm. They don't want us to have their music. We create our own music. We're going to create our own style. Let's do our own thing. And let's just be happy to be here. Like, we just want to be here on earth and That's... be happy. You know what I mean? So hip-hop culture is something that I'm proud of because it's it, it's who I am. It's like right. somebody saying that they're Hispanic or they're saying that they're Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm Christian too. And shout out to Regent University School of Law. Pat Robinson, can you believe what's going on? <laughs> Tell him, Pat. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I appreciate you going through all of your privileges, especially the cultural ones, and now just being an attorney and doing what you do. Like, that is a privilege that you're able to pass on and use that very directly to disrupt the systems. And really quickly, just to go down my privilege and a theme of today's discussion is that my family does own property two different homes throughout Virginia and that that property allows us to fellowship like we have this space we have a yard so that when we get together just like we have been in times where it's just sickness and in health and we need each other we just have a a comfortable space to be with each other and that's what these conversations really are when we're talking about homes evictions and we haven't even just talked about that 
that comfortable space that we all need to just be able to gather and and socialize and love on each other. So that privilege of having that space that's owned in my family's name is something that I really want to bring to attention today. So speaking of family name, let me say that the greatest privilege I ever had was being the grandson of Martin Anthony Hayat. May he rest in peace. And, mm. I, and everything I do is for the king. There you go. Here now. There you go. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. Thank you for all that work that you're doing. And please come back. Thank you so much. Follow me at Hayatlaw, H-A-Y-O-T-T-L-A-W on Instagram and email me Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L at V-P-L-C, Virginia Poverty Law Center dot org. If you have anything going on in the hood and you're in the the RHA homes and it's looking terrible or you have any questions, concerns, emotional outbursts, email me. Definitely all that. I found Daryl on Instagram, so it's real, y'all. H-A-Y-O-T-T-L-A-W. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us here. Yeah. This is so important here. Shout out to Equal Justice Works, Christy Mara, Steve Fishback, and to everybody at BPLC. All right. Thanks, y'all. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. I'm so thankful for folks like Daryl coming in and using his law degree and his privilege to work with agencies like Virginia Poverty Law Center. Having Legal Aid Justice Center on the show before with RTAP showing that these organizers and community voices have to align with the government agencies that are resourced, not just with money, but also with the, the, the knowledge of law and policy to stand up and make our voice valid in many of these systems and housing and policing. And, you know, we were just asking, are these agencies, are their next step going to be in education here in Richmond? Like, are we going to see parents and advocates start lining up with lawyers? But you brought up a good question to me of, well, what does that say about how our bureaucracy is really set up, that we need these voices to line up to, to have the national story about our eviction rate or our school systems and have that money poured in, even though Black people have been complaining and, and rallying and standing up, but because our complaints weren't articulate enough or framed in a way of the writing that's to law, we weren't heard. But that's why I, I do take the time to also point out to Richmond RVA liberals, white liberals of because our bureaucracy is set up to where white voices are heard and have that influence and power to just be conscious of how you're using that space, whether it's on social media, in person, to really look at, we are still having this conversation in 2019. I think that was like our theme of, wow, in 2019, we are still here. But we are really trying to work together. So looking at one another and how we can work together to amplify these narratives so that the right people are at the table helping to make these decisions and holding holding our decision makers accountable. Right. So instead of making the case that we're not racist white people, we need to hold people accountable, like you're saying, and present the receipts, mm. point out the issues, advocate for solutions. Right, right. I applaud everybody that has used their voice for this. And if we can continue on to have more of these intersecting conversations, but here in the formal capital of the Confederacy, we've got to talk about our racial problem. And we can't do it in a polite way. We can't make everybody comfortable because we've been doing that for too long and it's the 400th year, right? And we're still here. So it's time to really figure out how we are doing this in a way that truly makes us understand that we can't continue to outrun our own history of our place and space. Thanks so much for y'all listening and we'll catch you next week. I'm from the R.